Will you turn in your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 3, Philippians 3. And we want everybody to be able to follow along so the fellows have some Bibles, get their attention as they make their way back. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, they'll get one to you. As we look at Philippians 3. Of course, this is the first Sunday of the new year. And as our brother mentioned in his prayer, it is a time for resolutions for many of us. Resolutions most of us make every year and virtually none of us keep every year. I won't ask for a show of hands, but the truth is, if you were to be honest about it, the last several years and perhaps every year that you've made resolutions, most or all of those have gone unresolved. That's true for me as well. All kinds of resolutions that, at the beginning of a new year, many of us make some of the top New Year's resolutions are those related to losing some weight, getting some exercise, stop smoking. Other popular resolutions deal with money management, debt reduction, and so on. Related to that, I was reading in the Reader's Digest recently, and they were talking about how folks resolve to do some certain things like that, and there are often humorous results. Reducing your debt. The story is uh, some neighbors of ours had a terrible disagreement over a patio they wanted for their backyard. The wife had grand ideas. The husband wanted to keep costs to a minimum. The wife won out, and the construction bill climbed higher and higher. The writer says, I dropped by one day when the patio was near completion. I was surprised to find the husband smiling ear to ear as these workmen smoothed over the surface. I remarked how nice it was to see a grin replace that frown he had been wearing. You see where they're smoothing that cement, he said. I just threw my wife's credit cards in there. Or with regard to starting that diet, the writer says, my friend announced she had started a diet to lose some pounds that she had put on recently. Good, I exclaimed. I'll start a diet too with you. We can be dieting buddies and help each other out. When I feel the urge to drive out and get a burger and fries, I'll call you first. Great, she said. I'll ride with you. Or for getting in shape. A friend of mine had resisted efforts to get him to run with our jogging group until his doctor told him he had to exercise. Soon thereafter, he reluctantly joined us for our 5.30 a.m. jogs on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. After a month of running, we decided my friend might be hooked, especially when he said he had discovered that runner's euphoria. Runner's euphoria, he explained, is what I feel at 5.30 on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. Just a couple more. Eating healthier. The teacher in our Bible class asked a woman to read from the book of Numbers about the Israelites wandering in the desert. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had some meat to eat. Now the Lord will give you meat. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five or ten or twenty, but for a month until you loathe it. When she finished, one woman looked up and said, I think that's the Atkins diet. And then the last one, I'm quitting smoking. I discussed peer pressure and cigarettes with my 12-year-old daughter. Having struggled for years to quit, I described how I had started smoking to be cool. And as I outlined the arguments kids might make to tempt her to try it, she stopped me mid-lecture saying, hey, I'll just tell them my mom smokes. How cool can it be? All kinds of resolutions. And yet statistics show that commitment to New Year's resolutions wane after the first month 
And only 20% maintain the resolutions past Valentine's Day. Why is that? I've thought about that for myself and as it relates to others as well. I think one of the main reasons that the resolutions we make with great intentions are not indeed fulfilled is because they are most often not tied to the larger why question. That is, the reason for which I have resolved to do this particular thing is not tied to some purpose beyond myself, some transcendent purpose that makes this particular thing a must if I'm going to achieve that purpose. And so, weight loss. If it's simply so that I can look better, then that's a a purpose that's confined to time and to a particular person. But if it is related to being healthy so that I can fulfill the purpose for which God has placed me here, it now has a motivation beyond the here and now to quit smoking. Instead of just to save me money or to save my teeth or my breath or whatever it is, instead of just those temporal goals, to say that this is a misuse of the body that God has given me, a body that the Bible says is the temple of the Holy Spirit and must be used for His purposes, or debt reduction. Instead of just reducing stress, as it certainly would, and helping to pay the bills, as it certainly will, if it's tied to, I have a mission to fulfill for God, and to have margin in my finances, so that I can use that extra to carry out the work that the Lord has called us collectively to, it now takes on a purpose beyond the here and now, and beyond myself, a transcendent meaning that is indeed motivational. And in the passage that we're going to consider today, we're told of the life ambition of a committed follower of Jesus Christ, whose purpose for getting out of bed every day is supposed to be the purpose and objective of every follower of Christ, a reason compared to which all other ambitions pale, and to which that follower who wrote the words we're going to see, and we followers are to give ourselves and to order our lives. Philippians chapter 3. Notice the last part of verse 12. I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus took hold of me. And then verse 14 says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. In Christ Jesus. Now for what did Paul, who wrote these words, strive in his life? Press on toward. What was it that got him out of bed every day? That motivated him? Well, it was to be like Jesus Christ, whatever it takes. In verse number 10 of chapter 3, he's written that that may mean suffering or even death. But in verse 11, he says the goal is to be like him, to be like Christ. Did you know, friends, that the Bible teaches that's our ultimate destination as well? That that is to be our ultimate objective and destination, to be like him. 
Verse 21 of chapter 3 says that Jesus will one day transform frail bodies so that we'll have a glorified, incorruptible body like he does. The Bible states it this way elsewhere. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And then the question is, and what is that purpose? To be conformed to the likeness of his son. Why are we here? What is the purpose to which every other resolution and commitment and decision that we make attaches or should attach itself? It's to be like Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us very clearly that one day this will be achieved in the future. We shall be like him. And for those who have this as their ultimate goal, it's not just something that we look forward to in the future, but it has a profound effect. It makes a profound difference in the here and now because the passage goes on to say, we shall be like him. And everyone who has this hope, and the word hope in your New Testament is not just a wish, but rather is a confident expectation. Everyone who is confident, expecting that indeed we will be ultimately like him, in the here and now, purifies himself just as he is pure. We're going to be like Jesus someday. And because that's our desire and our goal and our passion, we strive to progress in that every day in the here and now. It's to be our goal, as it was Paul's goal, to be like him, to be like Christ in our character. That means to think as he thinks, to talk as he talks, to act as he acts, to care about what he cares about. And that's the reason then, in verse 12, that Christ took hold of us. He took hold of us for us to be like him. And that is the purpose that God, in verse 14, has called us heavenward to be like Jesus. So friends, this is what we mean when we say that we live to bring glory to God. To bring glory to God is to display God's glorious character. Or to put it another way, to be like Jesus. To think like he thinks, talk like he talks, act like, act like he acts, care about what he cares about. That's why the Bible tells us that we reflect the Lord's glory being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. That is the purpose. That is the reason for which God has placed you here and made you in his image and now is remaking you in his image, having saved you from sin and transforming you day by day. It is so that he can see his reflection in you and in me. But it doesn't just happen. It takes effort. It requires determination. Resolve. And that's why verses 12 and 14 say, press on. I press on to attain that for which Christ took hold of me. This word press on in verses 12 and 14 is the same word used in verse 6 of chapter 3 where Paul, who wrote this, spoke of his zeal. 
his zeal in the past, his enthusiasm in the past, his effort exerted in the past to persecute God's church. But the underlying motivation is dramatically different from verse 6 and verses 12 through 14. Verse 6 is zeal pressing on for self-righteousness. In verses 12 through 14, it's zeal of a man exulting in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And consequently, he's desiring to be all that he can be and all that he was made to be. And so he says, verse 12, taking hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. So friends, what gets you out of bed every morning? What is your transcendent purpose? What is it that motivates you to keep the commitments that many of us will make at the beginning of a new year? The Bible's answer is that each new day presents another opportunity to advance in becoming like Jesus. And those opportunities include all the stuff of life that you're going to face on a given day. Every last one of them. The good and the bad and the ugly. All of them are a means whereby I can grow in Christ-like character. That's the goal. I trust all of you buy it. I've taken some time to prove it. It is absolutely the case according to God's word. That's the goal. That's the transcendent purpose into which all else fits. The question then is, how do we achieve it? Paul not only tells us the goal, but in these verses he tells us how we can achieve that goal. And I have for you in the outline that was inserted in your program, the first thing that must happen if we're to achieve this goal of becoming like Christ. The first thing we have to have is an accurate self-image right now, in the present. In order to continue moving toward your goal, you have to understand, and I have to understand, that we're not there yet. That's why the first part of verse 12, notice what it says. Not that I've already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on. Paul had come to Christ about 30 years before composing this letter. He had been a Christian for 30 years. He had won many spiritual battles in that time. He had grown much in those years, but he candidly confessed that he had not arrived. When it says in verse 12, perfect, it's the word for mature. He's, still, he's saying that I still have room to grow in spiritual maturity. Now, friends, is it safe to say that if the great apostle had growing to do, then so do we? If he pursued spiritual growth into Christ-likeness with energetic zeal, don't we need to do the same? So why don't we? One of the reasons that we don't is because we are too often satisfied with good enough. Paul understood that the standard of measurement is not what I was, but rather what I'm designed to be. Did you all hear that? It's not just that I'm better than I was, but as long as I am not what I was designed to be, then I still have reason and motivation to press on. And so although we've grown today from what we were in the past, none of us are what we 
we're made to be. It's a requirement, friends, for continual spiritual growth that we have an ever-deepening understanding of what Christ is like and how far we fall short. And if we do that on a regular basis, being like Him is the goal. Here is where I am. We can never fall into the good enough trap, can we? Paul had a progressive understanding in his own life of his own sinfulness. Early on in Paul's writings, 1 Corinthians 15, he says of himself this. He says, I'm the least of the apostles. Some humility, but the apostles are still a fairly select group. And to be least among them still means you're something. But then as time progresses, you find Paul in his writings saying other things tinged with more humility as he understands more about himself. He said, I'm the least of the apostles. And then later he said, I'm the least of all God's people. And still later in Paul's career, he said this, I am the worst of sinners. See, friends, Paul had no illusions about where he was. And therefore, it motivated him to press on. It was not good enough. The purpose for which I have been placed here is to be like Jesus. And I have a long way to go. He, come, he came to recognize. And he recognized that in ever-increasing fashion as he grew in his walk with the Lord. We must have an accurate self-image in the present. There are times where I have talked to folks they come to me for counsel. They, they recognize at least they need help. But in the process of talking to them about where they are, I never cease to be amazed at the rose-colored glasses through which so many people see themselves. And they begin to tell me what a great guy or gal they are. And, you know, at some point I have to tell them, look, you don't have to do that. I've read the book about you. And I know you're not a great guy or gal. Because I'm not a great guy either. And Paul was not a great guy either. Yes, God in His grace had made him what he is. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Thanks be to God. And that's true for us as well. But none of us, friends, has attained. And none of us can be satisfied with good enough. We have to have an accurate self-image in the present. Secondly, we have to have a singular goal for the future. I see who I am compared to who Christ is in the here and now. But I want to move forward and so I have a singular goal for the future. That means I'm going to have to put the past in the past. I'm going to have to forget the past. Notice verse 13. Forgetting what is behind. Paul had much to put in the past so that he could advance into the future. Paul had to put his sin in the past. He persecuted the church and he considered Jesus to be a false Messiah, most of you know. His sinful, prideful past could have been spiritually debilitating for him, but it was not because he did what we all must do. Come to God in Jesus Christ asking Him to forgive. And having done that now, 
Even though he had so much to be sorrowful for in the past, he says, I'm going to forget what's behind. And I'm going to move forward. Why? Because I've come to Christ. And I can forget it because he's willing to forget it. And here's what the Bible says. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Thanks be to God. Hear this, friend. We must deal with our past or our past will deal with us. Our past has the ability to become our present unless we take care of it by taking it to God. Our confession and God's forgiveness is the only sure way to put the past in the past. And unless we get rid of it, it will get rid of us. It can, and it has for many, become a haunting memory that saps strength, dogs our footsteps, and handicaps our spiritual lives. And so I ask you on this first Sunday of a new year, have you dealt with your past? What you've done? Or perhaps what's been done to you? Or perhaps it's someone that you have lost through no fault of your own. Oh, lost a loved one. But that continues to debilitate you rather than trusting in the sovereign and ultimately good hand of a gracious God and saying, Lord, I place that in your hand and now I move on. Have you dealt with your past? Or is it still a bitter memory, a gnawing pain in your soul? Friends, we must get rid of it, not psychologically, but spiritually, through confession and correction. Look at what the Bible says about the person who does that. The blessedness of the person whose transgressions are forgiven, David writes in Psalm 32, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. That's who you need to be. That's who I need to be. Putting the past in the past. So we can move on for that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of us. I can only do it if I place the past on him. Give the past to him. Then I have this blessing. Many of us are familiar with those verses. They're quoted in your New Testament in Romans chapter 4. But you may be less familiar with the verses that follow because David says this, that's the blessing for which I long, but there was a time when I kept silent. And when I did that, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Some of you are now and have been walking around with the weight of past sin because you have determined to deal with your sin in your own way rather than in God's gracious way through Jesus. Hear me, friends. That is always a dead end. It will never work. The only time that you can be free from your sin is when you deal with it the way God has provided through Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you will suffer as David did. David says, I had an awakening. 
I realized I couldn't just keep silent. I had to put the past in the past as God has prescribed. And so he goes on and says this, Then I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Thanks be to God. Friends, you can forget what's in the past because God is willing to forget it. Now let me just remind you as to what the Bible means when it says you forget or God forgets. Truth of the matter is, God still knows everything. And there's a sense in which God can't really forget anything. When it says God forgets, it simply means God will not dwell on that. And God will not deal with you according to that when you have come to Him for forgiveness. And it is true that you will not completely forget everything that has happened to you. There will be times in your life when your memory will be jogged, but what you do is say, I will not dwell on that. I will no longer remain in the past because God has given me a new future. Now friends, this is so important. I do have a bit more to say, as you can see from your outline, but this is so important. As we start a new year together as God's people in this place, that every last one of us forget the past and move ahead toward the goal for which Christ has called us heavenward, doing that together in this year of 2010. It's so important that we put the past in the past. But I want to take a few moments now for us to bow before our God and to take opportunity to put our pasts in the past. It means for many of you some painful memory of something done to you. You're now going to commit that to a gracious, loving, and sovereign God and not have your future controlled by your past. For some of you, it means the loss of a precious, dear one Precious indeed, but in God's sovereign hand. And you commit that to Him when we bow in just a moment. For some, it means dealing, perhaps for the first time, really, with the sin that has dogged you and plagued you, but you've refused to come clean about it before God. And you've come now to this sacred moment God offers you an opportunity to begin anew. What a marvelous thing in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to bow together. And whatever your situation, I encourage you to do business with God. Let's bow before the Lord. Our Father, we thank you for this precious time to be together as your people, to look into the pages of your word, to see there the example of your servant. And I pray that in this spirit-filled moment, that we each will avail ourselves of the offer, the marvelous, gracious offer that you make to us, to put the past away, forgetting what is behind, so that we can move forward for the purpose for which you have placed us here. And so, Lord, we claim your promise of if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of the blood of Jesus Christ. 
And so I pray that many brothers and sisters, many for the perhaps the first time, are dealing honestly with where they are and who they are and what they've done. They're able to do so without excuses because they know that you know all about them. And despite knowing all about us, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I pray, Lord, for those who have these painful memories. Not things they did, things that were done to them. Things that happened in their lives. I pray that they are right now acknowledging perhaps the sin of not trusting your goodness and your control of your world. They're committing that person and that situation to you now. Oh, Lord God, grant us the grace of a new beginning. Help us to start anew, every one of us personally, so collectively we can see 2010 as a shining example of God's grace to this community of faith and to the community at large that you have called us to reach. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Paul had to put his past, including his sin in the past, but he also had to put his accomplishments in the past. Because Paul knew that spiritual victories yesterday could not suffice for today. And that's why it was a present reality for him that he was pressing on every day. And so, friends, it's not what happened to me in the past in terms of spiritual victories either. It's what God is doing today and tomorrow and next week and next month and this coming year. Paul put his past in the past. If we're going to move forward into the future, we've got to put the past in the past. And I say in your outline as well, it requires that we look ahead. The second part of verse 13. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. The words toward the goal come from a Greek word from which we get our word scope as in telescope, or let's scope out the territory. It means that on which I fix my gaze, that at which I am looking. And so he says that I'm straining toward what I'm gazing at, what I'm looking at. You know, friends, we always move in the direction of our vision. Some of you have heard me tell the story of when I had my first job when I was 16 and I delivered auto parts for an auto supply company. So I drove a pickup truck and delivered to repair shops and so on. And one day I was out driving and I was going along a uh, entry ramp onto the freeway and I took my eye off the road and looked down to tune the radio for only about 10 minutes or so. But when I looked up, there were weeds being mowed down. Thankfully, I didn't hit anything and I wasn't harmed, but I certainly could have been. Because we always move in the direction of our vision. I read the story some years ago of a swimmer named Florence Chadwick. And she was the first woman to swim the English Channel in both directions. At age 34, her goal was to become the first woman 
to swim from Catalina Island to the California coast. And on the 4th of July, on the 4th of July morning in 1952, the sea was like an ice bath. The fog was so dense she could hardly see her support boats. Sharks cruised toward her lone figure only to be driven away by rifle shots. And against the frigid grip of the sea, she struggled on hour after hour and millions watched on national television. Alongside Florence in one of the boats, her mother and her trainer offered encouragement. They told her it wasn't much further, but all she could see was the fog. They urged her not to quit. And she never had quit until that time. With only half a mile to go, she asked to be pulled out. And still thawing her chilled body several hours later, she told a reporter, look, I'm not excusing myself, but I, if I could have seen land, I might have made it. It was not fatigue or even the cold water that defeated her. It was the fog. She was unable to see her goal. Friends, to move ahead means we place the past in the past, but it also means that we are looking ahead toward that which Christ has called us to. And hear this, if you are floundering, it's because you have lost sight of the goal. If you're not moving, it's because you have no vision. If you're moving in circles, it's because you have a vision for nothing in particular, and so you're on a treadmill that's taking you nowhere. And if you have a goal, but it's anything other than becoming like Christ Jesus and living for His mission, then your goal is unworthy. If you're half-hearted in your commitment, it's because you're distracted. Paul was fully committed because his eyes were fixed on the goal and with his gaze locked onto the finish line, he says, I strain toward what is ahead. At the end of verse 13 when he says straining toward, it's the image of a runner straining every nerve and muscle as he strives to cross the finish line. Have you ever met people who are always, always analyzing? And you say, what are you going to, so what are you going to do this year? I forget this year. What are you going to do today? I don't know. I'm thinking about a number of things. I can't tell you how many times when I was the youth leader, a teen leader years ago, and we were having a youth event and we were just a few hours away and I would call a teen and I would say, so are you coming to the event? And they would say, I don't know. I'm thinking about it. Now, we're two hours away. They've known about it for two months. They're thinking about it. That teen becomes an adult who's still thinking about it. And when you talk to those adults and you say, what are you going to do? I don't know. I've got a number of options. I had a guy that I used to run into about every couple of years, Christian fellow, every couple of years when I ran into him, I would ask him where he's going to church. He would say, I'm, I'm looking for a church. Now, two years ago, he was looking for a church. And it's not that he found one and then joined it and found it to be doctrinally or philosophically defective. He never joined one. He's still looking. I call people like that, people who are engaged in analysis paralysis. They don't have a focus. And because they have no focus, they can never decide. Paul was focused like a laser so he could say at the beginning of verse 13, I have but one goal, becoming like Christ. It's the one thing I do. 
And knowing and pursuing the one thing we're about is more important, hear this, than the circumstances within which we pursue that goal. We spend our energies thinking about and pursuing situations and circumstances when we should put our priority on the goal of being like Jesus, growing in that pursuit. And if we do, the circumstances become the pavement. Even pavement with bumps on it, but the pavement nonetheless. The circumstances become the pavement on the course of our race. They don't determine the race. They don't determine the goal. What determines the goal is what God has told us we're put here for, to be like Jesus, and we strain toward that, and we focus on that, and now every person and every circumstance fits into that. They're not obstacles. They're rungs on a ladder to help me achieve the goal. So we don't let circumstances obscure the goal. And you don't prioritize circumstances over the goal. As soon as I finish school, I can start serving Jesus. As soon as I get that promotion at work and have more money, I can start serving Jesus. I actually had someone tell me, a sister in the Lord, years ago at our parent church, the church that started our church, she actually said to me, quote, sometimes you just have to put your spiritual life on hold so that you can get some other stuff done and then you can concentrate. And the Bible and Christ know nothing of that. If we're going to advance in the goal of becoming like Christ, we need an accurate self-image in the present. We need a singular goal for the future and then last and fairly quickly. We need to move forward now. And who is to move forward? Every last one of us. Verse 15. All of us who are mature should take a view, take such a view of things. This is to be your goal and my goal. Now you say, no it's not because it says those who are mature. And I'm glad to tell you, Pastor, I'm not mature. So that puts me out. But remember, Paul said he has not attained maturity either, right? So it's for all of us who have advanced in our maturity, which includes every one of us, but we have not become completely mature. None of us has attained the goal. So this is not just for the so-called Green Beret Christians. It's for every one of us. All of us are to move forward and all of us are to move forward now. The passage says in verse 15, we are to live up to what we have already attained. That is, we don't sit in despair because we're not there. We live up to what we know and then we seek to know more. A journey of a thousand miles starts with the next step and so we take the next step. You all have heard me say a number of times that many Christians... In fact, I would say most Christians that I know are educated well beyond the level of their obedience. They know much more than they're willing to put into practice. And so Paul says here, live up to what you have already attained. What most of us need is not another Bible study. Or not more information, but it is to act on the Bible that we know. So let me 
conclude. What about then the mission of seeing folks come to Christ and seeing new churches planted and using my gifts to that end? You've said here, and Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, that the goal to which I'm to strive, for which I'm to strive is to be like Jesus. So how does the mission fit into all of that? Well, hear this, friends. God gave the church for the purpose of teaching others to do the same thing, to become like Jesus. And the church's collective mission is to see as many as possible come to Christ and to progress in looking like Christ. And so what is my purpose? It's to serve his mission while becoming like him. Or to look like him and help others to do so as well. Or to know him and invite others to know him. A lot of ways to phrase that. But it is to be like Jesus, but we're to be in the process then of inviting others to do the same, for which all people were placed on this earth. So as we start a new year on this first Sunday of 2010, friends, I would like us as a church to make some resolutions together for 2010. I have three that I'm going to put on the screen as we end. And then throughout the year, I'm going to remind you and myself of these resolutions that we make before God. And I trust you will make them with me. First one is this. That in this year, every one of us is going to submit to Christ as Lord in every area. Now I say submit to Christ as Lord. I didn't say make Christ Lord. I'm careful about the way I use my language. Jesus is Lord. So you don't make him Lord. You submit to his lordship. Lord means master. He's your master. He's my master. I don't negotiate with the master. I submit to the master. He tells me what is good for me. He tells me what I should do. What I should be like how I should talk, what I should care about. That's what it means to be like Jesus. And so in 2010, I'm going to stop playing church. I'm going to stop showing up and taking it or leaving it. Ken gets up week after week and tells me what God says. But I come with this notion that Sometimes I do it and sometimes I don't. Friends, that is beneath the dignity of our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Every time we come before Him and come before the authority of our Lord's words, every one of us, myself included, must say, Yes, Lord, I will do what you say. I will be different this week than I was the week before. What a marvelous thing if 52 weeks from now, every person here fulfilled that resolution in 2010. Submit to the Master in every area. Treat our partners in the Gospel as precious. Now that phrase, partners in the gospel, comes from chapter 1 and verse 5 
of this letter, Philippians, where Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. And he says, I'm thankful for your partnership in the gospel, your fellowship, your communion in the gospel. You see, we have been called to this place and this time to carry out the mission that God has given us to call people out of the world and to himself so that they too are in the process of becoming like Jesus. And so we work together as partners in a fellowship in the gospel. The Bible says that those that God has called out of the world are, are precious treasure. God takes very seriously anyone who would harm any of those who are his own. Those, the Bible puts it this way, those for whom Christ died. You have those people seated around you. In 2010, every one of us needs to resolve to say, I'm going to be an instrument of edification, building up in the lives of those people. I will consider it a crime, a crime before God, to speak an ill word about a brother or sister in the Lord. I will never slander or gossip a brother or sister in the Lord. And to the extent that I may have, I'm going to make that right, put it in the past, and we're going to move on. You say, do we have a problem with that? Not that I know of. But you've all have heard me say many times, the best medicine is preventive. I have a pastor friend who every year at his church preaches a message on gossip because it's such a potentially debilitating issue for every church. Treat our partners in the gospel as precious. And thirdly, let's each of us view our attitudes and our words and our actions not just as this is the way I am. <laughs> my attitudes, my words, my actions matter. They're sacred. Why? Because they're to mimic the attitudes and words and actions of the Savior. And to the extent that I fail to do that, I fail in the mission to which I've been called. And so we don't blow it off. We don't blow off our attitudes and our angry words and our sinful actions. We see them as that important. And we deal with them then and there and with anyone who we may have harmed in them. Friends, we're going to remind you throughout the year of these resolutions. May God grant us the grace in our personal lives to deal with the past, whatever that is for us. To be focused like a laser on the future. And then together as God's people, to resolve to fulfill these resolutions in 2010. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, thank you again. For the words of your servant, the convicting reminder that this is for us, but the blessed reminder as well. Blessed because, though the past be painful, perhaps through our own participation, perhaps through no fault of our own, but though the past be painful, the past can be placed there and left there. And we can have a future in the hand of Jesus Christ, walking the path that he has marked out for us with joy, not knowing the next turn in the road, but knowing this, that Jesus knows about it completely and he's designed it for my good and for his glory. So I need not worry. 
I can have joy in the present, not because of my abilities, not because of anything I've done or will do, but because of the one who has done it and is doing it for me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your mercy and your grace in our lives, calling us out of the world and to yourself and giving us this grand purpose to be like you, to call others to do likewise. Help us to be faithful to that in 2010. We pray in your name. Amen.